Welcome to Making the Table, Black Women Podcast with parents, Timory, Jasmine, and Sunny. So we're back for another week and here we are ready to discuss our readings on Wheat Silipochtali, uh, which is our will, growth in self and the collective. So ladies, what did y'all think about uh, this week and some of our reading? Man, Paolo Freire's reading messed me up a little. <laughs> Like in a good way, like it was, it was a lot. It took me a little while to read it just because it's a lot of really like deep philosophical and psychological, theoretical type things. But it was really good once I got through it. Like it really made me think about a lot of different things. And I ended up, I think this is the first time during a reading where I like was writing stuff down because I was just like, everything he's saying is absolute fire. (laughs) So I needed to write some stuff down. So I think that's probably the thing I was most excited about and was making a lot of connections with. So I was glad to read that. And now it makes me want to read like the whole entire book because I know that was just chapter one, but it's probably the most hype out for sure. Yeah, I I was absolutely- Oh, go ahead, Paris. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying that I would 100% agree. Um, It kind of like, it definitely was a bit of a struggle to get through. Um, Makes me just a tad bit (laughs) intimidated by the, you know, the whole book, but I'm definitely interested in reading the whole book as well. Um, I've read about him before. I think it was in Angela Davis's autobiography. Um, So just, it's just very interesting. I definitely enjoyed it. Um, It definitely kind of when you when when the way that he put like the oppressed and the oppressor is basically like those two boxes and those two classifications and understanding that you are either an oppressor or you're the oppressed um and that the only way to not be either is true liberation but that requires true liberation of all of us i just thought it was super powerful i agree i felt like um this is actually i think one of i think it's powerful that he, as an educator, like wrote this about education. I think sometimes when we talk uh, about um, oppression and when we talk about um, how it comes about and how it's repeatedly taught that we missed, we miss how it is in education and the responsibility that we have as educators to ensure um, that we are not oppressing our students, but also that those who have been oppressed are the ones that we are asking uh, to help lead us out of oppression. I also kind of feel like that puts a lot of, uh, it puts a lot of responsibility on people who I feel like were victims. So while I love, I love, you know, this book, I love, um, I actually read it uh, last semester in my undergrad, but I'm, I'm concerned. I always felt a little bit concerned that we were putting just a little bit too much pressure on the people who already had to go enough. I mean, I get tired of teaching people about blackness all the time, you know? Like, so I I imagine, even though I understood what his thought was and I agreed, I really had to stop and kind of ask myself, like, am I I asking people, especially as we talk about, uh, you know, indigenous communities or we talk about um, the Chicano communities, am I asking them to do too much work to help me not oppress them, you know? Did anybody feel like that? Or what, am I am I the Lone Ranger this time? That's literally one of the things I wrote down. <laughs> That's one of the notes that I wrote is I was just like, I, cause I know we've talked before about how like as black women, it gets very exhausting, like constantly having to educate people about our own struggle in, in an attempt to get them to help us. And so, that was one of the things that I actually wrote down in my notes is that I was just it, this this same exact thing. Like, are we putting too much on people who've already been victimized and who were oppressing? And I think one thing that I thought was interesting that um, Freya wrote was that he had said like you, 
in asking people to do this, you actually have to listen. Like it's not a matter of just, you know, kind of placating people and saying like, well, what do you think we should do? And then when they give you an answer being like, well, no, 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 that's the wrong way to do it. You know, like, let's do it this way. And so I do like that he kind of threw that caveat in there of like, you have to be willing to trust that that person or that group and and know that they know what's best for them. But I still kind of struggled and I don't know that I actually came up with an answer of like, is this putting too much pressure on on that oppressed group to to be the the teachers or to to be the people who have to constantly educate others. So I'm glad you asked that because I definitely wanted to get everybody's thoughts on it too. There was one point that he said, which was, but always during the initial stage of the struggle, the oppressed, instead of striving for liberation, tend themselves to become oppressors or sub-oppressors. And I think that kind of ties in where um, sometimes you find people, I mean, you can even find it like with black people or whoever, they, for instance, if they get to the top, they're the CEO of a company and they're making all of this money, instead of trying to do better, they're like, well, I'm not oppressed anymore because I'm at the top of my company or whatever. So I'm yeah. good and I'm not worried about anybody else. Yeah. And I think that that point really stuck out to me when I was reading it. I also think it was important that he noted that we can't express, expect, we can't basically like, we can't trust our oppressors to liberate us. If they, if they could, if they wanted to, then we wouldn't, then we wouldn't beat the oppressed and the oppressors. So I think that putting the earnest on those that have been oppressed and I, it, though it may be a lot, I think it's definitely necessary. We can't look for um, anyone else to teach us or to provide us with freedom when they already haven't done so. And they're, version of freedom clearly is not what is actually free for us and so I think it definitely has to be on us that are the oppressed like I said I do agree that it is a lot and it's it's a, it's a heavy lift but honestly who who is it out there that we can trust to do that who is it out there that will actually like you said listen to us who is it out there that will see what we've been through um in community um and not do exactly what Jasmine said, become, you know, the the colonized man is what you call it. The person who sees the oppressor wants to be like the oppressor, hates him at the same time, but is still also attracted and envious of what the oppressor has. And so they become in this stage in their mind, not being oppressed, but are actually turning into oppressors themselves. So I definitely think that it is heavy, but I think that it's necessary um, because it, it's like, um, you know, you have to, you have to, and you are the only person who can guide with, for your community and your people. You're the only person that sees those intricacies day in and day out, sun up to sun down. Um, the oppressor can only see what they want to see. And so trusting them with our liberation, again, doesn't leave us fully liberated. I love that. No, absolutely. And I'm so glad because as we kind of shift to thinking about how this particular reading, how it affects, um, where we are, you guys know we've been um, we've been reading the Nawi Olin, which is the four movement uh, uh, that the Aztecs really um, uh, was a basis of practice, and so we've gotten all the way to uh, it is how do we pronounce it? Wheats Wheat Silipotli. Said it right. So we've gotten to that, which is our will, growth, and self, and the collective. And so our question this week is really. How will um, our will to act show up in our community or our social justice life? You know, again, our community can include um, our family, uh, where we live, anything, you know, including trans-border national communities, our community at large. How will, uh, how will we, we silipotally, how will that influence us in what we are currently doing or what we want to see done? Jasmine? Um, so I don't know I feel like for me a lot of my will to act comes with me it's just like at this point in time because um, I am home with them a lot um, so they're kind of I try to put into them what they're kind of out of the world 
uh, and um, um, there was instructions about this, so, um, but I can even bring it back to, I worked with, um, homeless kids, homeless youth for a while, and, like, a housing situation, um, that helps them find, like, homes, and you kind of work with them, you help teach them, like, life skills, because a lot of them, especially the older kids, end up not having getting adopted or getting placed anywhere. Um, and that, and working with like um, early Head Start before I had my kids, my goal in life is to just help those who can't really get help and are kind of just looked over even when they ask for help. Um, you'd see a lot of parents who don't know the basics of anything and they're out there trying to raise kids themselves and don't know how to cook or clean or even know like where their next meal may be coming from. Um, so I try to teach my kids that and like, you don't know what anyone else is going through every day. Um, so be that good person. Um, uh, I don't know. I, think that's I like, love that. No, I love that because I love that because I think so often we talk about like these big, you know, these big things that maybe feel like, oh, you know, I want to be on a camera or I want to do this or I want to do that. Uh, but you're talking about how people are able to live um, and how that can affect the collective. If, they're, if we have healthier homes, we have a healthier community. And so I'm super glad that you um, see how important that that is for sure. And that falls right into you know, growth and self and the collective. So I love that. Paris, what about you? How do you, how do you feel like you can incorporate uh, weak syllopocally? How do you feel like you can incorporate it? Honestly, this is the, this is the one. So I think from the, the first two movements, it's very, you know, able to see, okay, self-reflection and then learning. Um, this one and then trans, uh, transformation. And those are the two that I really struggle with because I have no idea what I want to do. Um, I have no idea how to start. Um, I don't even know what I want to start with just yet. And so this program for me was more so um, being able to learn and being able to learn how um, to act and, you know, exactly determining exactly what I want to do is what I'm still working on. Um, I will definitely say that this reading as, as, um, and the readings from our leadership development class definitely have, it's so crazy that they came together, um, how the courses aligned together and even with the seminars that we've attended in the last few weeks. Um, I just want to share information. Um, I think that there's so much out there and you hear it on the news, you know, you see it on social media, but like really deep diving into it, um, really understanding what, you know, what these theories are and the ability and how we can act on, you know, the information that we know is, 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 is been powerful for me. And so at this point, being able to share information and that's how I, that's how I think that I will show up just on the most basic level, um, continuing to have the conversations, um, you know, applying the theories just to my everyday life, um, and sharing it in my community as well. I think that that's a, I don't think it's enough. Um, but I think it's a start. I definitely think that from here I can build on what it is that I want to do and how I want to do it. Um, but to start sharing information and also learning more. I mean, learning is a, you know, is an act itself. And so just continuing my education and continuing to look deeply and more deeply into these um, theories into the into history itself um, and using that to continue to guide me. Yeah, Paris, um, I appreciate that because I know um, and we're both in the leadership development course as well. And I love how when she was talking about leadership, she talked, she did a seminar and she talked about how there are four uh, different parts of leadership. There's uh, the leader, you know, there's the organizer, there's the a policymaker and there's a mentor. And she talked about, um, Professor Syrian talked about how all four of those have to work together in order for there to be a movement. So I definitely don't want you to say, you know, I want to get information and I know it doesn't seem like enough. Like without information, we perish. You know, we, we, we aren't going to know what's happening and what has worked and what hasn't worked. I think that honestly, I think that that's where we fail as we talked about last week. I think that's where we have failed 
um, as a country where we have um, systematically been stripped of our information. You know, we've been stripped of our history. We've been stripped of, you know, things that really happen because the people who win are who write the textbooks. So, you know, uh -huh. without the information, like you said, that we're getting now, and I don't know if y'all feel like it, but I feel like once I got connected to Prescott College, I started receiving a lot more of information. I was like, wait, people are out here studying these questions that I've been asking myself for years. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I'm, like, this is I'm like, oh, y'all got answers. Let me see. Uh, but it's something about coming to, together with a collective, as, as we're talking about now, with a collective uh, that is seeking and researching the same things you are and be and being willing to share that information. Yeah, I think there is, uh, Paris, I don't know, have, has anybody ever done Strength Finders? Have y'all ever heard of that? Like where you, it like helps you find your, your it's like a book that you read and there's a quiz. Uh, basically, my number one strength pairs was input, which basically means that I'm a hoarder of information. So like, I, I read a lot, but not only do I read, uh, like everybody will know, I used to like take, a, I used to have to get like a new certification and take a new class every year. That was like my own, you know, little thing. Before I got in grad school, I was like, I can't afford to take an additional class. Right. You know? <laughs> but, um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think. The more information we have, the more information we're going to disseminate, and thus the collective is going to be more educated. And for me personally, I think that is why I know I have to be um, a higher ed educator because I just felt like I got to I I got to college and just didn't know nothing like not not stuff that I really needed to know like about policies and about how they affect me. And not to just, you know, not to only vote in the presidential election that I needed to vote in my local elections and why, you know, I think we're now seeing these younger generations are, are getting that. And so I think we continue to galvanize that movement by using the information that you mentioned and giving it to this next generation specifically. Absolutely. I love it. Okay, Timory, what about you? How does this feel? How do you feel about, um, you know, that how are you going to utilize that within yourself and within the collective? How do you, how are we going to utilize wheat silipoctily um, within uh, your collective? I think you're muted. Oh gosh, that's such a like loaded question. <laughs> like, I think that the biggest thing for me that like I took away from Frere specifically was that you're always going to be fighting like you're it's it's never a like oh we made it and now we can stop fighting and stop talking about it and like everything's fine now like you're constantly going to be battling against injustice and misinformation and um oppression basically and so i think understanding that like you can pause but not stop is the biggest thing for me and and knowing that in constantly fighting and like constantly putting that information out there to the to the collective and getting the whole collective to fight is what makes us stronger. And I think that um, understanding that, you know, there was one thing that really stood out to me was um, his reading really reminded me a lot of like the Tuck Yang reading that we had from a couple of weeks ago. And they say that like um, to gain equal legal cult cultural entitlements is actually an investment into settler colonialism. And when Freire was saying like not to latch on to the oppressive system we have just so that we can like be comfortable and stop fighting, that was really, really strong to me. And so just understanding that like we can never stop fighting and that it's not, it's not the people, like it's not the oppressed people who are the problem. It's, it's the oppressor culture that we have that's been so deeply embedded and and it's it's so deeply embedded that it's it's like reflected in people who are oppressed now and so i think just knowing that like you're always going to be fighting and making people aware of the fact that like you know the historical history behind it of like this is why things are this way and and understanding like how it affects them and how that trauma really plays out and continues to play out. Um, even with it being historical is really important. Um, as you guys know, like I'm in the critical psychology program. So my 
my view is a little bit different, but I think that just, you know, knowing that I can get tired, but I can't just like stop. That's probably my biggest takeaway is continuing to constantly fight and to constantly keep going. And if I need to take a break, that's fine. But like just getting comfortable with the fact that we're going to have to fight and we're going to have to make a better system. And um, it's kind of really has to do with our, our whole podcast, right? Like if you don't have a table, make one for yourself. And so I think just understanding that there's times where we're, we're going to have to make our own table and that table might be a much bigger undertaking than we think, but it's, it's worth it in the end. So that's probably my biggest takeaway and how I plan to continue it within my own community is just like making people aware of the, of the historical injustices and healing through that trauma so that we're not just covering it up and, and moving on. Yo, I think that was so powerful when you said um, you can pause, but that doesn't mean you have to stop. Um, I, to me, that was like, oh yeah. Like sometimes you do get tired, right? Sometimes you like, I'm sick of this. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm, yes. I'm I said last week that this country owes me reparations, <laughs> all kind of stuff, right? And you get mad. So, you know, every time I look at this school bill, I'm upset that I gotta pay this, you know? Um, but I, I love what you said. You said, you know, take a minute, like take a minute. And I think, honestly, I think that's a part of, you know, even take, you know, taking care of the will to take care of ourselves. Um, and, and even the will to take care of ourselves and our collective. It actually, uh, I think uh, Paris mentioned it. It actually kind of has to do with that first, uh, that first movement, um, Teca, La, Teca La Poca, which is that reflection and that self-love like taking that and saying, hey, I need a minute to reset. I need a minute to regenerate so that I can come out here and help my collective grow. No, I think you were you were spot on um, just reminding people that, hey, we got to take a moment and just chill for a minute. Like chill, make sure you got yourself together. Uh, Jasmine talked about it as we kind of talked through how families are, you know, struggling right now. And Timory, you see it, you know, with your critical psychology expertise like people are struggling out here what if we normalize people taking a moment to say all right i know i know the world is on fire i know it but i gotta take a break so that i can actually continue to lift up this hose and put this fire out otherwise i'm a perish just with the fire so thank you for reminding us of that for sure now I do have a quote that I, I thought and I'm gonna read it and you know, Jasmine, I wanna hear your thoughts on it, Paris, Timory. Um, in Pedagogy of the, of the Oppressed, uh, Frere reads, he wrote, only power that springs from the weakness of the oppressed will be sufficiently strong to free both. So he's talking about both the oppressed and the oppressor. Only power that springs from the weakness of the oppressed will be sufficiently strong to free both. Now, I, you guys know I come from a, a faith background and there's a scripture that goes with this. It, it talks about how uh, the last shall be first, essentially. And so those who have uh, repeatedly been put last, God is going to uh, flip that thing around and help those people, those people who were last, those people who were oppressed, um, to come out on top and be able to lead the charge, right? So in my mind, I was thinking through how power, um, how the power of the oppressed is so potent that it is the only thing uh, that can really shift the dynamic that we're currently seeing. But I started to ask myself, how can this, how does this play out in what we are seeing in the oppression of education right now? How can the, uh, those who are being oppressed, how can they, how can that power be collected or brought together or, uh, you know, pushed forward in one movement together to actually make change occur, um, especially against what we're, what we're seeing. We're seeing books banned by uh, black and brown people. We're seeing curriculums ripped out. Uh, we're seeing, you know, I, we, we literally just saw, you know, the curriculum makers are coming out like, no, we didn't say that. That's not what we said. And I think a part of that is because the collective together is banding together to bring that power to say, hey, we are not okay with this. Um, 
what do you guys think? Any thoughts on that, on that collective about how, how power um, of the oppressed that, that only power that springs from the weakness of the oppressed will be sufficiently strong to free both? There was a part um, that I believe it correlates with that. And when he basically said that when the condition of oppression is resolved um, and a new situation is created, the oppressors do not feel liberated. They actually consider themselves oppressed. And I think that that like literally is what we're seeing. We have garnered so much power in our voices and taken back the power in our education that is attempting to dismantle the system of oppression and and the oppressors are seeing it and they can't fathom anything else that does not allow them to be on top anything that does not allow them to be on top anything that does not continue to perpetuate um you know colonization and dehumanization it makes them feel oppressed it makes them feel like well if i'm not on top then who is and i think that speaks directly to both of the things that you just said both the scripture and from the reading um i think that we just have to continue to harness that power um at some point you know our power and i think that we are getting there our power is going to be so widespread through liberation schools through programs like this through um and and what they mentioned in one of the webinars that we were in this week kind of that like underground railroad of education that power is going to become so strong that it it, it's not going to have a choice but to topple that system um they may not feel like they're free because they you know they may feel oppressed because they are no longer at the top but once you know we are able to like Freer said you know once we are all able to see that you know in liberation there is no oppressed and oppressor then you know that's when things will really begin to shift so i think there's from what i took from it there's levels to it there are a few steps to actually realizing what that liberation is and we just have to continue working towards that um, I am in youth organization as well, um, and we watched this documentary, not really, uh, it was like based off of, um, there was a bunch of um, walkouts in, I want to say California, um, with Mexican-American students like the 90s, and um, something that stuck with me through that was um, even though those students didn't get to see a change because they graduated, most of them, or like were just out of school, there was a change, it just came later, but they were the start of the change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of oppressed people kind of forget. Like they could be making a small change, but it's not big enough. So they are like, okay, why well, didn't I do anything? I haven't accomplished anything. And they kind of just, give up and they're like well we're just we're stuck like I can't make a change and and with schools especially um Timory I think I don't know if you remember but a couple like last year or the year before a bunch of students at one of the high schools walked out because they were being forced to like stand for the pledge and um a lot of the teachers were very racist essentially and there was a lot of like African students at the school as well as Hispanic it was predominantly like Hispanic and African students they had a walkout they were out of school for like three or four days I think uh, at the high school and they ended up I believe except like coming to terms with it and they no longer have to like stand for the pledge and so then they agreed to come back and I think that's one thing that kind of stuck with me out of like us talking is I may think I didn't do anything because I barely accomplished something, but I accomplished something so that the next group of people, the next group of oppressed people can come in and do even more. That's so good. Sometimes I think we feel like what little we do um, might not be enough. You know, uh, this week, um, I was invited um, to come and just share with a group of uh, really diverse like ministry leaders. And we kind of had the opportunity to just talk about spaces where, you know, you don't see um, black people um, at some of these conferences and you don't see uh, women, you know, leading at some of these conferences and, and what that does, um, having to sit and learn under that 
you know, not only to our faith, but to us as as people. Um, and some people may not understand this, and I and I get it. Uh, but for me, as a uh, as a black woman, um, before I was um, a Christian, before you'll ever know that I am a Christian, uh, you're gonna see that I'm black, <laughs> and you're gonna see that I'm a woman. And so, um, you know, and God forbid I ever, ever, you know, walk away from the faith, I'll still be black, I'll still be a woman. And so when people don't really understand it, sometimes you see kind of ministry circles where people are like, oh, you've got to make sure that you, you know, you got to really lean into, um, instead you got to lean into, you know, your Christianity and you should, but you know, the scripture tells me that I'm made in, in Christ's image, I'm made in God's image. Um, and being made in, in God's image means that me and all of my blackness and all of my femininity, um, it's a, it, it was created um, by God to make me who I am. So I don't discount that. And I don't go in places where um, I'm not welcome. And I know if I'm welcome, if there are other people who look like me that are uh, on the executive board, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna, I, don't, I just don't understand how we kind of get lost in that. Um, so you're right, um, Jasmine, you know, sometimes my refusal to, you know, attend those type of spaces, open up the conversations later to say, hey, is this really something that we want to be, you know, attached to if, uh, you know, somebody else already brought up something about it. So you're right. I love, I love, love, love that. Um, okay, so I have one more about. Wait, 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 hold on. Sorry, go ahead, Tiberi. I'm sorry. That's okay. Right. So I just wanted to say, like, as far as oppressors' weakness being their downfall, essentially, right? Like, I think we're already starting to see a lot of that. So, one thing that stood out to me that at first I thought was a really awful thing, right? So, we live in Iowa, and in Iowa, they just made it legal that basically, um, public money that is supposed to go to public schools can now be put into private schools, right? Like you can go to a parent and if a parent wants to pull their skid or their kid, sorry, skid, geez. Um, if a parent wants to pull their kid from public school and put them into private school, the government will essentially give them money for it. And I'm talking like $12,000 or something like that to send their kids to private school. And when I first heard of that, I was extremely upset because I was like, man, this is this is the beginning of the end. Like, this is the beginning of really conservative, like, you know, su white supremacist schools rising up and denying kids who are black and brown and, and indigenous. And like, this is, it's gonna take away funding and success away from kids who can't afford it or don't have any other option. But as I thought about it more, and after we went to um, the the kind of conference thing with uh, Bavu Blake the other day, it really got me thinking along with these readings of like, it may be their downfall, right? Like people of color are amassing a lot of power and our words are doing a lot of work and we are making a lot of change. And I think, you know, who's to say that other people aren't also going to make their own table? What if we start having black educators who now have made their own private schools to start teaching some of these curriculums, kind of like we're seeing with the MAS program uh, and the, the Shito um, program? And who's to say they're not gonna make their own programs like this in their own schools like this? And, you know, we know that black and brown and indigenous kids far outnumber their white counterparts. So who's to say that they're not going to start pulling their kids from these public schools and that these teachers who want this kind of curriculum and who want to be able to teach history and stuff accurately are not going to leave and start creating their own places and making their own spaces to be able to kind of hold this, this space for these people and these kids. And you know, making their own way essentially. And so it really got me thinking about like, I think it's kind of already starting to be their downfall, right? Like black and brown people for decades and years and hundreds of years have been circumventing and finding ways around other people's rules and figuring out how to make it work for them or how to kind of use it against them on, you know, and saying like, well, this is your rule. So, you know, we're technically still following your rules. 
And I think that that's starting to happen now. I think that looking at it first, you know, offhand, we may not see it right away, but with the development of like the Shito program or um, one lady that I've been working really closely with, she's created her own curriculum for um, historical trauma and like teaching this curriculum about um, African and indigenous historical trauma and, you know, going and holding her own spaces and, um, you know, really just getting the word out there. And I think that we're really starting to kind of see a bit of that underground movement and acknowledgement of like, no, this isn't how we want things and it's not fair. And we're going to start doing it the way that we need to do it to better help ourselves. So I think it's there. I just think it's hard to see sometimes. And I think that Jasmine's very right when she says like, we may not see the full fruition of it in our lifetime, but our kids and our kids' kids are going to be able to take it that much further later on, for sure. Oh yeah, Timory, you hit on something. Um, it made me go look it up, uh, but um, you're right. Uh, when you talked about that, you talked about, you know, really uh, black and brown people really pulling from the collective. Um, I was able to pull really quickly um, this, um, I was able to pull really quickly this uh, statistic from, uh, the census. So 2019 census, there were 3.3 black homeschoolers. Uh, in the spring of 2020, there were 16.1%. Now remember, we know 2020 was heavy on the uh, heavy on COVID, right? So I'm interested to see what the percentage is now. But you're correct, Timory. People began to realize. Uh, I think it was really COVID started to help a lot of parents maybe take a deeper dive into what actually what curriculums were actually being utilized in the traditional school system and some parents didn't agree you know some parents felt like hey this is not representative of my culture or it's not representative of even really a diverse culture it is it's it's one particular avenue um and it may not be uh the the one that actually is the most truthful so I, I typically have seen it and I'll say, you know, as I always mentioned, you know, I'll say as a homeschool mom, I definitely, uh, that was something that I realized my son at, as an elementary student, he struggled in a traditional classroom setting and I made the decision to make sure that he didn't become a statistic. And so I, I've seen them thrive where they are. I would be interested. I know you said in Iowa, kind of what they're planning. One thing that homeschoolers typically are talking about is we pay uh, taxes toward education in whatever county that we live in, but we don't get to utilize that particular, uh, that partic those particular monies. So because of that, I wonder, will it shift from you can use, you know, what money you would have utilized in public school to now it's you're saying, I think you said it in Iowa that it's to the charter school or private school. Do, will it ever shift for those particular homeschoolers to utilize it to fund their own homeschooling journey? I doubt it, but that's the point of the conversation. Some states like, for example, uh, North Carolina, your homeschool is set up like a private school. Once you set up your homeschool, you name your school, you have an opening date, you have your time. It is literally set up like its own entity. Uh, so, you know, if that was ever the case there, technically homeschoolers are private school students because, you know, private schools typically, unless they're in an association, they make up their, they can create their own, their own standards, so to say. Uh, of course- That's they, a really good point. I think the other thing is like if you start having because I know during COVID like we had a lot of um, we were starting to see a lot of parents do kind of like pod schooling right so like yep. a group of parents getting together to, to be able school. to micro school yeah. we call them yeah yep. so like I wonder if if that were to be the case is that considered a private school then right like so that's a really interesting point I would like to love I would love to see that happen I was a dinosaur state so I don't know if that will ever happen but and the other thing I wanted to touch on is like you know I think the other thing we're starting to see is like what happens as a parent when you tell your child no with no explanation right like they want to know and they want to see it even more if you continually tell people nope we're not going to do this nope we're not going to do this we just we can't do it because I don't like it 
right? Like, <laughs> who has that ever been a good enough reason to stay away from something for? And so I think we're now starting to see a lot of people getting curious of like, well, why? Like, why is this so dangerous? Why can't we teach it? What's the problem with it? Why do you not like it? And making people kind of either one, fess up that they don't like it because it makes them feel weak and it puts them in a place of um, feeling oppressed when it's really just inconvenience, or they have to own up to the fact that like, well, really, I'm slight. I'm 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 racist, and I don't I don't want people to to ever get in 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 my spot, basically. Right. And so I think, you know, if you're gonna constantly tell people, nope, 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 you can't do that because I don't want you to, people are gonna start to wonder, and people are gonna seek those things out even more. And if you give them phony reasons, like most people eventually come to their own terms of like, I'm not stupid, like this is not a good enough reason. And so I think as those things become more available or, you know, black and indigenous and other people of color start making their own areas and saying like, if you wanna know, come on in, come on in, like we have nothing to hide. People are gonna start to really seek that out and wonder exactly what all the hype is about and figure it out for themselves, for sure. I love that. All right, I got one last quote, and we'll, 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 we can finish out with this quote. Uh, it was toward the beginning of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and it says, the dispensers of false generosity become desperate at the slightest threat to its source, which is something we actually just finished talking about. It says, true generosity consists precisely in fighting to destroy the causes which nourish false charity. So what they were really talking about is, how do we make sure that we don't go from basically into saviorism, right? So it says true generosity consists precisely in fighting to destroy the causes which nourish false charity. As uh, those of us who are fighting the good fight, what is something that you do to make sure that as you are working to make sure the collective is well, that it doesn't become performative? What is something that you do so it doesn't become performative? I can go first. Uh, one thing I always love to do is ensure that I'm not working in a silo. I love teams. I don't ever like doing anything by myself. I like to do it with people who are gonna disagree with me, people who are gonna agree with me. I love working with the team because it brings different viewpoints um, all around. Uh, so for me, that's how I make sure that I don't become, uh, that the focus of the movement doesn't become one person, doesn't become me, uh, but it become, it stays on what we are working on by making sure that we are, that I'm working with the team and pushing forward as a team. So that's just me. Anybody else? I ask questions. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a lot to learn um, there is some things that I know, but there may not be anything that I know fully, 100%. Um, I think that you can do a lot of research, you can read a lot of books, but there's still going to be some pieces of the puzzle that could be missing, a perspective that could be missing. So I personally just like to ask questions. I read this. This is what I got from it. What did you get from it? And what do you know that I don't know about the history of this statement? What do you know that I don't know about the history of this movement? Um, so being um, inquisitive and wanting and seeking out the truth, no matter who it hurts. Um, I think that there's a lot that happens and there are a lot of good people, bad choices, bad people, good choices. There, There's a mix in between all. And so not, you know, standing up and saying, hey, I have the, you know, the most solid perspective. I know everything about this place. I know this person made the best decision. Um, being more inquisitive and really being um, thirsty to, learn, to know more, to learn more. So good, so good. Um, Jasmine, do you have anything that you have seen that you do? Um, I would say I'm like Paris and I ask questions. I also um, watch a lot of documentaries. I like to learn, um, not just solely like one-sided. I like, I may hate it, but I'll watch a documentary about Trump and see what I can learn from that to help me or where it can help me or I can understand whatever I'm trying to learn. Um, so kind of same with like, I don't, 
I want the information, but I have to have it from both sides. I have to be able to like question uh, whatever it is I'm learning. And if you sit there and you just look at the information, that's all gonna tell you. Uh, like I just watched a documentary about um, kind of like higher ups and like make America great again and all of that. And one of them talked a lot about how um, he only would get information from QAnon, right? And so it'd be all the same information. Everyone's saying the same thing over and over, and that's all the information he's getting. He's not Googling anything. He's not looking at a newspaper. You know, he's keeping it the same where he's going to get the information he wants to hear, whereas he's not getting information that's true or correct. Um, and so that's something I try to do. Even if, like, I may disagree with it. I try to learn from either side. Sorry. It's okay, I love that. Thank you. Thank you, Deb. Timory, do you have one? I think that from my critical psychology perspective and something that really stood out to me that Frere said was, um, you cannot be objective without being subjective. You can't, you cannot separate your culture from yourself and think that that gives you some superior insight into how humans function, right? Like it's just, it's, it's not possible. And I think that objectivity is a myth um, because we all always bring something from our own personal lives into things. And I think understanding that and understanding that like you can't truly be objective without being the subject is is really profound. And I try to take that with me wherever I go. Um, I work for a tribe and you know, there it took me a really long time to like because I came from I had never worked for a tribe before. I had never worked for a tribal organization. I had never really, um, you know, like my sisters are are half native, but they, you know, they were obviously raised with me. We have a white mom, like we lived in the city. So I really never had like a, a deep understanding. And I think understanding that like, there really are so many different cultures. And like the way that that culture is, is, it, it affects those people and those people affect that culture. And I think understanding that like, you're never gonna come into a culture and understand it better than those people do. You're never going to have the understanding that they do. And, you know, there's times where, you know, like for instance, okay, if somebody who had never encountered black people came to you and they were like, tell me everything I need to know about black people. Like, where the heck do you start? Like, there's there's some things that like black people or indigenous people or any other people of color do naturally that like you don't even think to explain to people. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that's how every culture is. And I think knowing that like you can't be objective. Objectivity is a myth because anytime you go into a situation, you're bringing your own preconceptions and your own biases and your own mind frame and your own everything you're bringing it all with you and so it's a it's a big combination of of what paris said of you know constantly asking questions right you have to ask people questions you cannot just go in and think that you know everything and that your way is the best way and what jasmine said of getting tons of different perspectives. Like you can't just say like, oh, I heard it from this one place and that's all I need to know. That tells me everything right there. Like that's, it's not feasible. It's not responsible. It's not, it just, it just, it doesn't make any sense. And so I think that's probably my biggest takeaway is just that like you, you cannot be objective. It, it's not possible and you cannot be objective without being subjective. Like in order to really understand the situation, you have to be a part of it somehow. You have to understand the ins and outs. You have to ask other people for their different perspectives of that same situation. You know, there's there's a lot that goes into it, but that's probably my biggest one is just that, you know, you, you have to 
you can't be objective without being subjective. And even then, objectivity is still, eh, it's a little iffy. So I think that's my biggest one. In the air. Well, um, any final thoughts? Uh, I think we've kind of come to the end of our time, but uh, I'm excited about what we get to work on. So, so far we've worked on, uh, when we talk about the Nahule Olin, the four movements, um, we done Tekelapoka, which is reflection, uh, introspection, and self-love. We have done Shipitotek, which is transformation, enlightened perspective. And today, I'm excited, today we have done Wheatsilapoktali, which is our wheel, growth, and self, and the collective. So next week, we got the last, the final one, uh, or at the next recording anyway, we'll have the final one. Um, it's been amazing. So I'm super excited that we get to continue to kind of walk through these together. Any last thoughts, ladies, before we get ready to sign off? I think the last, oh, I'm sorry, Paris. Did you want to go? No, I was just saying I didn't have anything. So go ahead. (laughs) I was just going to say, I think the last thing that I really thought was awesome was when Freer talked about subjectivist immobility, like patiently waiting for oppression to go away on its own is never going to happen. You have to be active and you have to take action and, and in action, is truly an action right like like mlk said like the 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 modern the modern or not i'm sorry not the modern um the person who's in the middle who doesn't ever pick a side is the most dangerous right like that person is the one who's gonna let it either fall to whichever side so these are things that like you can't just let go away on its own you have to be active and you have to pick a side and i like there's a lot of people that I've met who are like, well, why do I have to pick a side? Why can't everybody just get along? <laughs> like, this is why. Reflect for yourself. Read these things and, and you know, get to know people. But that's it. That was my last thing I wanted to say. So. So good. Jasmine? Oh, I forgot. Right? <laughs> that's all right. We'll get it. We'll get it next time. You're all right. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Of course, uh, Making the Table of Black Women podcast. We're super excited and we'll be back again uh, in the next couple of weeks to finish out uh, these four movements. Thank you again and have a great night. Thank you for listening to Making the Table Black Women Podcast. Never forget, instead of waiting for a seat at the table, make your own table.